Hi, I'm MJ Kelly. And I'm Aiden Cox. And welcome to episode three of On Your Left. This episode, Feminism and Intersectionality. So what is feminism exactly? It's the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. It also advocates for men's rights, but because women are in a lower status than men, according to society, it focuses primarily on uplifting women. So why is intersectionality important? So you may have heard of something called intersectionality in regards to feminism. So what is intersectionality and why is it important? Intersectionality is a prism for seeing the way in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exacerbate each other. Intersectional feminism centers the voices of those experiencing overlapping concurrent forms of oppression in order to understand the depths of the inequalities and the relationships among them in any given context. So for example, let's say we have a black woman and a white woman. The things that they experience are going to be different because of their different levels of oppression. A black woman is going to experience much of the world differently than a white woman. All inequality is not created equal. An intersectional approach shows the way that people's social identities can overlap, creating and compounding the experiences of discrimination. Now, the woman who invented the term intersectionality is named Kimberly Crenshaw, and I'm gonna read you a quote by her. We tend to talk about race inequality as separate from inequality based on gender, class, sexuality, or immigrant status. What's often missing is how some people are subject to all of these, and the experience is not just the sum of its parts. Another quote, this time by Mahandra Rodriguez Acha, those who are most impacted by gender-based violence and by gender inequalities are also the most impoverished and marginalized. Black and brown women, indigenous women, women in rural areas, young girls, girls living with disabilities, trans youth and gender non-conforming youth, end quote. It's impossible to move forward with any kind of activism without understanding the role that intersectionality plays in both its strategy and outcome. For example, while we do still live in a world where women are not completely equal to men, women of color are often disproportionately disadvantaged, for example, earning less for the same job compared to their white counterparts. Without acknowledging the systemic racism that underpins these issues, it's not possible to work towards a multi-pronged solution that will tackle them from the ground up and create a more equitable world. To become a better feminist, start by recognizing your privilege, listen to those from other oppressed groups without getting defensive, take responsibility for your own education, Support works created by people of color and use your voice and your privilege to speak up. All right, now uh, we're moving on to women's history, AKA women's suffrage. The first attempt to organize a national movement for women's rights occurred in Seneca Falls, New York in July of 1848, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a young mother from upstate New York and the Quaker abolitionist Lucretia Mott. About 300 people, most of whom were women, attended the Seneca Falls Convention to outline a direction for the women's rights movement. Stanton's call for arms, her Declaration of Sentiments, echoed the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. In a list of resolutions, Stanton cataloged economic and educational inequalities, restrictive laws on marriage and property rights, and social and cultural norms that prevented women from enjoying all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of the United States. Stanton also demanded for women the sacred right to the elective franchise, despite objections from Mott and others who considered this provision to be too radical. The convention eventually approached the voting rights resolution after abolitionist Frederick Douglass spoke in support of it. After the emancipation of 4 million enslaved African-Americans, 
radical Republicans in Congress who remember were still the progressive party at the time. They proposed a constitutional amendment extending citizenship rights and equal protection under the law to all persons born or naturalized in the United States. Whether those rights would include women was unclear, and debates in both houses of Congress focused on defining citizenship. Many members praised the virtues of manhood suffrage and expressed concern about the inclusive language of early drafts of the proposed amendment. Ultimately, the 14th Amendment went as far as to define voting rights as the exclusive privilege of male citizens, explicitly adding gender to the Constitution for the first time. During the debate over the 14th Amendment, Stanton objected to the use of that word male and sent to Congress the first of many petitions supporting women's suffrage. On January 23, 1866, Representative James Brooks of New York wrote Stanton's petition into the official record, along with an accompanying letter by Susan B. Anthony, who you have most likely heard of. Some members, including George Washington Julian of Indiana, welcomed the opportunity to enfranchise women. In December 1868, he proposed a constitutional amendment to guarantee citizens the right to vote without any discrimination whatever found on race, color, or sex. Julian's resolution never came to a vote, and even congressmen who favored expanding the electorate were not willing to support women's suffrage. During the congressional battle over the 15th Amendment, Stanton and Anthony had led a lobbying effort to ensure that voting rights for women were included in the legislation. With increasing frequency, Stanton denounced the extension of voting rights to African-American men while restrictions on women remained. She praised the virtues of educated white women and warned that new immigrants and African-Americans were not prepared to exercise the rights of citizens, which is not, we don't support those views at all, not. Susan B. Anthony was um, incredibly racist. Um, most history books don't teach that because she was seen as such um, a hero for supporting women's suffrage and voting rights, but in reality, she only supported that for white women. Yeah. Um, so not so fun history fact there. Nope. Stanton's rhetoric alienated African-American women that were involved in the fight for women's rights, and similar ideas about race and gender persisted in the women's suffrage movement well into the 20th century. Led initially by Stanton and then by Anthony, the NAWSA, or National American Woman Suffrage Association, drew upon the support of women activists in the organizations such as the Women's Trade Union League, the Women's Christian Temperage Union, and the National Consumers League. For the next 20 years, the NAWSA worked as a nonpartisan organization focused on gaining the vote in the states as a precursor to a federal suffrage amendment but the suffrage movement was only so welcoming. In the last two decades of the 19th century, civil rights and voting rights came under constant attack in large sections of the country as state policies and court decisions effectively nullified the 14th and 15th amendments. As the system of segregation known as Jim Crow crystallized the South, African-Americans saw protections for their civil and political rights disappear and few members of Congress or suffrage advocates were willing to fight for any additional federal safeguards. You've most likely heard of Jim Crow laws. They were horrid. In an 1898 address to the NAWSA, African-American activist Mary Church Terrell decried these injustices while remaining hopeful that, begin quote, 
not only in the perspective enfranchisement of my sex, but in the emancipation of my race, end quote. African-American suffragists like Terrell continued to struggle to expand access to the ballot. Their voices, however, could only be heard outside of Congress. In the House and Senate, those voices had fallen silent. From 1901 to 1929, no African-American legislator served in Congress. The promise of the Reconstruction era that American democracy could be more just and representative was undermined by an organized political movement working to restrict voting rights and exclude millions of Americans from the political process. Between 1910 and 1914, the NAWSA's intensified advocacy led to successes at the state level in Washington, California, Arizona, Kansas, and Oregon. In Illinois, future Congresswoman Ruth Hannah McCormick assisted as a lobbyist in Springfield where the state legislature adopted women's suffrage in 1913, the first such victory in a state east of the Mississippi. Women won the right to vote the next year in Montana, thanks in part to the efforts of another future Congresswoman, Jeanette Rankin. In 1915, Carrie Chapman Catt, the veteran suffragist and former NAWSA president, returned to lead the organization. Catt authored the winning plan that called for disciplined and relentless efforts to achieve state referenda on women's suffrage, especially in non-Western states. 17 key victories followed in 1917 in Arkansas and New York, the first in the South and the East. The 1916 election of Jeanette Rankin of Montana to serve in the 65th Congress from 1917 to 1919 crowned the Winning Plan campaign. Katz's Winning Plan and Paul's protest campaign coincided with the United States entry into World War I. Kat and the NAWSA eagerly embraced the war, believing that women would quickly prove themselves in their support for the cause overseas, and that extending the franchise at home would be an important step for national readiness and morale. Moreover, leading suffrage advocates insisted the failure to extend the vote to women might impede their participation in the war effort just when they were most needed as workers and volunteers outside the home. So suffrage activists pioneered many innovative political tactics that are still used today. These include lobbying elected officials as they did in statewide and national suffrage campaigns, going door to door to convince male voters in New York State to say yes on the statewide suffrage ballot initiative and picking the White House. Suffragists also leveraged the burgeoning consumer culture by creating political ephemera such as flyers, badges, and cartoons and infused their public protest with symbolism and visual impact by proudly wearing white at a time where it was considered unusual for women to even gather in public. The suffrage movement in the 19th Amendment discriminated against many women of color. In New York, the suffrage movement attracted a diverse range of women, including Sarah J.S. Garnett, who founded the Equal Suffrage League in Kings County in the late 1880s, and organized for the vote through the National Association of Colored Women, when Mabel Lee, who led a contingent of Chinese and Chinese-American women in suffrage parade down Fifth Avenue in 1917. Yet white-led suffrage organizations in New York and elsewhere usually excluded Black women and sometimes told them to march at the back of parades. After the 19th Amendment passed, Black women did vote and run for office in New York as opposed to many states that passed state and local laws disenfranchising them. But Native American women and Asian American women were barred from voting due to other federal citizenship laws. Native women until 1924 and some Asian women until the 1950s. This is a horrible stain on the women's suffrage movement and something super tragic that people don't usually talk about when it comes to women's rights um, is how racist a lot of the women who were fighting for equal rights for women 
were. It's really sad. Voting is one of the many crucial tools in the activist toolbox. Women have often sought change through voting or running for office, but they have also worked behind the scenes in government and pushed for change through grassroots activism. This was the case in 1920, 50 years later, amidst the demands of the women's liberation movement. So I want to warn everyone, this next section is going to be very heavy. We're going to be talking about violence against women. Um, so if you are sensitive to topics of sexual assault or domestic abuse, please stop the episode now. We don't want you to get triggered by what we might be saying when in regards to violence against women. So the first thing we need to talk about is FGM. Um, many people don't know what FGM is, um, but it's something that I think is important to talk about because it does still happen in a lot of places around the world. Female genital mutation comprises all procedures involving to the removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. On average, girls are subjected to FGM between birth and age 15. FGM is not prescribed by any religion and has no health benefits whatsoever. On the contrary, the practice can in fact cause life-lasting physical and psychological trauma. 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone FGM. At current rates, an additional estimated 68 million girls face being cut by 2030. There are four types of FGM. Type one is known as a clitoridectomy. Type two is known as excision. Type three is known as infibulation or pharaonic type. Type four consists of all other procedures to the genitalia of women for non-medical purposes, such as pricking, piercing, incising, scraping, and cauterization. This procedure is carried out at a variety of ages, ranging from shortly after birth to sometime during the first pregnancy. It is most commonly occurs between the ages of zero to 15 years and is decreasing in some countries. The practice has been linked in some countries with rites of passage for women. FGM is usually performed by traditional practitioners using a sharp object such as a knife, razor blade, or broken glass. There's also evidence of an increase in the performance of FGM by medical personnel. However, medicalization of FGM is denounced by the World Health Organization. Immediate consequences of FGM include severe pain and bleeding, shock, difficulty in passing urine, infections, injury to nearby genital tissue, and sometimes death. The procedure can result in death through severe bleeding leading to hemorrhagic shock, neurogenic shock as a result of pain and trauma, and overwhelming infection and septicemia. Almost all women who have undergone FGM experience pain and bleeding as a consequence of the procedure. Many women experience chronic pain, chronic pelvic infections, development of cysts, abscesses and general, genital ulcers, excessive scar tissue formation, infection of the reproductive system, and decreased sexual enjoyment. Additional risks for complications of infibulations include urinary and menstrual problems, infertility, later surgery, and painful sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse can only take place after opening the infibulation through surgery or penetrative sexual intercourse. Consequently, sexual intercourse is frequently painful during the first weeks after sexual initiation and the male partner can also experience pain and complications. In addition to the severe pain during the weeks following the cutting, women who have undergone FGM experience various long-term effects, physical, sexual, and psychological. The event itself is traumatic as girls are held down during the procedure. Risk and complications increase with the type of FGM and are more severe and prevalent with infibulations. Women may also experience psychological conditions such as PTSD. A multi-study country study by WHO in six African countries showed that women who had got, undergone FGM had significantly increased risk for adverse events during childbirth and that genital mutation in mothers has negative effects on their newborn babies. According to the study, an additional one to two babies per 100 deliveries die as a result of FGM. Now we're going to be talking about sweatshops. 
Sweatshop is a workplace where workers are subject to extreme exploitation, including the absence of a living wage or benefits, poor working conditions such as the health and safety hazards, and arbitrary discipline. Today, the overwhelming majority of garment workers in the U.S. are immigrant women. They typically toil 60 to 80 hours a week in front of machines, often without minimum wage or overtime pay. In fact, the Department of Labor estimates that over more than one half of the country's 22,000 sewing shops violate minimum wage and overtime laws. Many of these workers labor in dangerous conditions, including blocked fire exits, unsanitary bathrooms, and poor ventilation. Government surveys reveal that 75% of U.S. garment shops violate safety and health laws. In addition, workers commonly face verbal and physical abuse and are intimidated from speaking out, fearing job loss or deportation. Overseas, garment workers routinely make less than a living wage, working under extremely oppressive conditions. Fierce competition for cheaper labor costs, as well as liberalization of trade barriers, has brought apparel production to countries where workers have little bargaining power and where authoritarian governments squash worker organizing. U.S. retailers and manufacturers are reaping enormous profit in the garment industry, selling wages with little reaction relation to productivity. In Mexico, for example, apparel workers are 70% as productive as their U.S. counterparts, yet they earn just 10% as much per hour. The very structure of the garment industry encourages the creation of sweatshops. Retailers sit at the top of the apparel pyramid, placing orders with brand name manufacturers who in turn use sewing contractors to assemble the garments. Contractors recruit, hire, and pay the workers who occupy the bottom level of the pyramid. In many countries, competitive bidding in these contractors for work drives contact prices down so low that they cannot pay minimum wages or overtime to their workers. In fact, in today's garment industry, very little competitive bidding takes place. Most contractors are put in a take it or leave it position and must accept whatever low price is given to them or see their work placed elsewhere. The contractors must sweat up profits out from their workers, cut corners, and operate unsafe workplaces. We're going to spend a very brief time discussing dating violence and domestic abuse just because it is such a sensitive topic. I'm basically just going to give you some statistics. Um, Nearly three in 10 women, or 29%, and one in 10 men, or 10% in the US have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by a partner, and have reported it having related impact on their functioning. Just under 15% of women and 4% of men in the US have been injured as a result of intimate partner violence that included rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner. One in four women, which is 24.3%, or one in seven men, which is 13.8%, aged 18 and older in the U.S. have been a victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Intimate partner violence alone affects more than 12 million people every year. Over one in three women and one in four men in the U.S. have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Almost half of all women and men in the U.S. have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime, 484 and 48.8% respectively. Women ages 18 to 24 and 25 to 34 generally experience the highest rates of intimate partner violence. From 1994 to 2010, approximately four in five victims of intimate partner violence were female. Most female victims of intimate partner violence were previously victimized by the same offender at rates of at least 77% for women of ages 18 to 24, 76% for ages 25 to 34, and 81% for ages 35 to 49. Nearly one in five women, or 18.3%, and one in 71 men, 1.4%, have been raped in their lifetime. Nearly one in 10 women, 9.4%, in the U.S. have been raped by an intimate partner in their lifetime. As you can see, these statistics are really, really hard, and if you want to do something to help, you can reach out to various charities that support women who have um, are trying to escape their partner who may have abused them. But yeah, it's, it's really sad and it's something that as a society we need to work on. Um, 
fixing and teaching little boys and girls not to hurt each other in any way. And that concludes episode three of On Your Left. My name is MJ Kelly. And my name is Aiden Cox. And we can't wait to have you back here next week for episode four, the ABCs of LGBT. Goodbye.